This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Don't forget you can subscribe to get every episode in your podcast feed every Thursday. Now, one of the questions that English Heritage staff and volunteers get asked all the time is what life would have been like inside a castle. But that really depends on which castle you're talking about and when. For example, there's Dover Castle in Kent, a vast medieval cliff-top fortification with its great tower created by King Henry II. There's Kenilworth Castle in Warwickshire, once a medieval fortress turned into a palace designed to impress Queen Elizabeth I. Or there's Bolsover Castle in Derbyshire, a fairy tale Stuart mansion designed to entertain its guests. All castles, all in different locations, and all designed to serve different purposes. Well, joining me to put the people back into the fortresses that English Heritage cares for is Head Historic Properties Curator, Dr Jeremy Ashby. Hello, Charles. Great to talk to you, and it's always a pleasure. So let's start from the beginning. The dictionary definition of a castle is a large, strong building built in the past by a ruler or important person to protect people inside from attack. Is that, strictly speaking, accurate in terms of what we're about to discuss? It's certainly accurate in terms of what we're going to discuss, and I'm pretty happy with it. There are lots and lots of dictionary definitions, and if I had one criticism, there's one bit of the traditional definition that's not mentioned there, which is that castles, we think, had to be residential. They were homes. They were very specific kinds of homes, but they were definitely lived in. And I think that's the thing that we really want to talk about today, to talk about life in a castle. And we know this is a subject that actually some people are very, very interested in, but it's quite difficult to see it all the time. If you visit many of our properties, many castles are ruined. They haven't been occupied for hundreds and hundreds of years. And they can actually seem quite gaunt, quite forbidding, and certainly empty places. And you have to use your imagination to put the people back into them. So before we talk about the people, let's talk about the different types of castles. How many different types of castles are there? Oh, probably as many different types as there are castles. Castles have been a subject that people have been studying intensively for several centuries. And there are a number of traditional types that, that we talk about. Some that people will already know about from the earlier period, the period just after the Norman Conquest, which is generally accepted as the period when castles really come into England and they really take off. You have a very famous type called the Motton Bailey Castle, where there's a man-made mound surrounded by a ditch, usually with some kind of tower on top of it, and then a larger enclosed area at ground level, as it were, the bailey. That's one type. And the Normans also had another less well-known type called the Ringwork Castle, in which you didn't have a mound, but the whole enclosure of the castle was surrounded by a ditch and a bank and presumably some kind of perimeter defence, often a timber palisade or a stone wall. Later periods, particularly in the 12th century, they do start to get more elaborate and you certainly get a little bit less intensive use of timber, although timber structures never go away. You get stone towers, the great towers that sometimes we also call castle keeps, would replace the mound and the timber tower on top of it, the mot. Bit. And as you go into the 13th century, 
then the perimeter defences will get more and more elaborate and they reach probably their most elaborate form in the type of castle that we call the concentric castle where you don't have one set of perimeter defences, one curtain wall, you get actually more than one, you get two and they reach a particular peak of sophistication in the late 13th century in some of the castles associated with King Edward I but actually it's a type that had been around before that. It sounds as though you've described about three main types there, Jeremy. Are there variations on that theme as well? There are lots of different types of variations. So another one that I've got some lovely examples on within the English Heritage Estate is a variant of the Mott and Bailey Castle that we call the Shell Keep. So instead of having a timber or stone tower on top of the mound, you actually have another sort of little curtain wall that runs around the edge of the top of the mound. And you have other buildings inside that, a shell keep. And that's things like Totnes Castle in Devon or Pickering Castle in Yorkshire. So who ran all these castles then? That is, I think, a very interesting question. And actually, not that many people know the answer to them. We always talk about castles as being the properties of kings, queens and noblemen. But kings, queens and nobles were travelling around all the time. So many castles are going to go long periods of time when they're not there. And actually, we do know the answer to the people who would be there pretty much every day, that all castles are going to be the responsibility of paid officials of those people. And always the person at the sort of top of the pyramid is called the constable of the castle. And he, it's almost always a man. There are very few cases where women actually have the job. And he would be responsible for the upkeep of the buildings of the castle but also the security of everything inside it, both in terms of property, but also a very important job of a constable is to look after any prisoners. And where we have surviving documents of appointments of constables, that can appear quite prominently. And actually it can read quite scarily that it will usually take a form along the lines of the constable is now entrusted with the safekeeping of this prisoner And the constable will answer for him body for body, fail in no part of this, lest the king be forced to take revenge on you for letting him down in your own life or your own property. So so it can be a very heavy responsibility. It's not always the nicest job in England, because if something goes wrong with a castle, that can actually be a quite serious matter for the owner of the castle, and he's probably going to take it out on you. The constable particularly sounds like a a forbidding person, but I understand that these days many castles that English heritage look after are um, kind of empty and forbidding as well. Uh, Is that a true reflection of what they would have looked like during their heyday? Well, some doubtless were, but some doubtless weren't. Some of the royal castles, these are things like Dover Castle or York Castle or Carlisle, for example. You know, these are the places where the local arm of the royal state is responsible for governing that part of the country. This is the place where people will be brought in to be tried and brought in to be imprisoned and sometimes brought in to be executed. That is probably going to be quite grim. But at the other end of the spectrum, if you imagine somewhere like Kenilworth Castle or Goodrich or Framlingham, these are actually probably going to be much, much more attractive, much more beautiful once you get inside the forbidding exterior, because to all intents and purposes, these are country houses. Okay, they're an important part of the administration of the estate of a baron, but actually these are places that we know that some of these households would come and stay in for weeks or even months at a time. 
and they had to have all the comforts of home. So we would imagine that they would probably be quite elaborately decorated, well furnished, all the furniture would be brought in, you know, with part of the travelling household. And we know that they would also be staffed by a quite large and elaborate household that would not only look after the Lord and Lady and their immediate family, but also would be able to entertain guests to come and stay. And we do know that at some of our properties, Goodrich Castle is, is one that, that's very, very well documented in the late 13th century. The other wealthy people came and stayed with Countess Joan de Valence in the 1290s, and she had to feast them quite lavishly when that was there. So when you see the stone shell, that's the bit that survives. What doesn't survive is the painting on the inside, the stained glass windows, the furniture, the, the hangings of textiles, and some of the less substantial structures that must have also been there. So, you know, all these people are riding horses, and some of the ladies are probably coming in carriages. So the horses all have to be stabled, and the carriages have to be sheltered somewhere around there. And often those are the, the parts of the structure that haven't left an awful lot of trace in the fabric. But they must have been there. They were a key part of the operation of the site. Jeremy, you've described um, the royal castles and the baronial castles, um, slightly different levels of luxury and creature comforts. Let's look at some of the more specific castles then in the English Heritage Collection. How many people would have lived at a medieval castle, such as Dover Castle in Kent, Walkworth Castle in Northumberland, or Carisbrook Castle on the Isle of Wight then? It's going to vary depending on circumstances, but one of the more interesting things to me researching this is that the numbers of people living in these castles are probably fewer than we might think. When you see a site like Dover Castle, I mean, in fact, all of those ones, but Dover is actually a really nice example. Dover Castle, it's huge, absolutely colossal. And if you imagine those lengths of curtain wall, all of them with battlements, you know, if you imagine that there has to be a soldier or a crossbowman behind every battlement, you're going to have a cast of thousands. The reality is that almost certainly weren't, that actually when thinking about the size of a garrison, for many castles, 20 or 30 seems to be a, something of, the, you know, of a magic number. In fact, I mean, we have documentary confirmation of this to do with Dover Castle. There's an absolutely wonderful document called The Statutes of Dover, which was written sometime in the 13th century. And one of the things that that says is that at all times, particularly at night, there shall be 20 watchmen on the castle walls. Now, those 20 watchmen aren't going to be able to cover the whole thing. They will be going around the whole time. But that's the sort of size of garrison that we might be talking about. And actually, we've got, you know, a few other cases where we know about the size of the garrison. So at Framlingham, for example, in the early 13th century, 26 knights, 20 sergeants, seven crossmen, a chaplain and three others. And that's the sort of size of it. And I think there's an important, a lovely moment at the end of the 13th century when you get a lot of documentation about castles because Edward I is, is often going to war and he's even building a lot of new castles or he's rebuilding some of the ones that he already has. And sometimes when he's got a new castle, he actually makes rulings for how many people there shall be. And for some of his new castles, it will say there will be 30 fighting men of whom 10 or 15 shall be crossbowmen. There will be one chaplain, someone to look after the weapons, a blacksmith, a carpenter and a mason. And from the others shall be made doorkeepers, watchmen and other necessary officers. So, so sort of within that 30 men, there are going to be a number of specific roles. What's also interesting, though, is that that's not the totality of the people that are going to be there, because we only get hints of this, but it is absolutely certain that not everyone in the castle was an adult male. 
for one of the Welsh castles, for example, we have a document that tells us that at a time when there were known to be 21 fighting men inside the castle, there were also seven women and there were four infants, that's very, very young children, and three small boys. So that's probably going to be you know, the ages of eight to ten or something of that kind. Now, they must be the wives and children of some of the 21 men, probably the higher rank ones, the officer classes. You know, one figure that we do know a certain amount about in a number of castles is the wife of the constable of the castle. You know, he's a knight and he will have a lady. And if she's a lady, she will also have to have serving women to look after her. So already you start to get the feeling of a probably the same number again of other people around there that are within the castle. Some of the grooms that will be looking after the horses, for example. The staff of the chapel, you know, we talk about a chaplain, but there will probably be two or three. There will maybe be a chapel clerk as well, who's got to do all the admin and the writing and some of the assisting with the religious services. Actually, there's a few people there and they're not all armed to the teeth and they're not all trained for fighting. It sounds like maybe, you know, 50 odd people, something like that. Yeah, for a castle, you know, 50 odd people are going to be rattling around in the castle. There's quite a lot of space for them. But that's just at one moment. What, of course, then sometimes happens, for example, for a castle like Dover or Carlisle, is that every so often the enormous travelling circus of the royal household will actually pitch up there because business or pleasure will take them there. The kind of period I'm talking about in the 13th century, the royal household is enormous. This is several hundred people some of whom are, are fighting people, but also servants and administrators that come. And they've all got to be lodged somewhere. So then you get this really odd moment in which, from having been sort of half empty, suddenly the castle is bursting at the seams. And, you know, if they go to stay at one of the smaller royal castles, so, say, Peveril Castle in the Forest of the Peak in Derbyshire, This is not a very large site. And if you imagine several hundred people pitching up there, that's going to be, you know, multiplying the numbers of people in there by five or six fold. And the place really would be be incapable of looking after them. So then you've got to imagine the question of where the hell is everyone going to stay? Probably some of them are going to be billeted in other places or they may even have to sleep in tents. But it's just physically impossible to imagine everyone sleeping in, in, you know, in the spaces that actually were physically there. So the whole character of the castle will change enormously depending on what else is going on. But when they're fighting, then a whole other different load of things, things apply because there will naturally be people who will be coming to the castle to defend it who you know will be drawn from the local area and there'll be some other people that might even be taking refuge inside the castle for their own safety and again that will swell the numbers so at those sort of slightly unusual moments when sieges are taking place then once again the numbers will go up rochester castle there was a siege in 1264 and a document tells us that during that siege, there were 163 horses that had to be fed inside the castle. And for 163 horses, you've got to have at least 163 men to actually be riding them. So once again, this quite small castle is suddenly going to be bursting at the seams. You talked about um, Dover Castle in quite a lot of detail there. How does that compare to Walkworth Castle in Northumberland or Carisbrook Castle on the Isle of Wight? They're absolutely lovely castles. I think we have to assume that the kind of scenario that I've talked about there is fairly typical because we don't have detailed documentary information for all of them. But Carisbrook's a rather nice case in point. Well, actually, both of them are because they're both baronial castles. And so once again, 
the numbers of people there are going to fluctuate enormously depending on whether the household of the lord and lady is present. So, for example, in the 13th century, Carisbrook Castle in the Isle of Wight was the property of a very interesting-sounding lady called Isabella de Fortibus, the lady of the island, who's incredibly wealthy, very, very well-connected. And she would have a quite large household that would be coming and staying with her that could well be probably 80 people, you know, up to 100, maybe even slightly more. And Walkworth Castle is the property of the, of the Percy family, who are sometimes described almost as the kings of the north. These are very, very important people in their own right. And once again, their travelling household is probably going to number in the hundreds when they come and stay. And, you know, the same kind of issue of how are these people going to be lodged and how are they going to be fed will come up. And I suppose the only other point that I'd like to make about them is that people like Isabella de Fortibus or the, the Lords Percy at Walkworth are the kind of people that attract other important people as well. And when those other important people come to stay, then they are going to be bringing retinues of their own as well, who also have to be looked after. You know, I can't help but think of the kind of scenario to do with country houses after the Middle Ages that's now been made quite famous by the likes of things like Downton Abbey, where you get this incredibly complicated logistic operation below stairs of who lives where and who their servants are and what the rules of precedent are. And I bet that's exactly what it was like when you went to see the newly completed Walkworth Castle, say, in about 1400, where suddenly the whole social setup there is immensely complicated. And you just got to, you know, someone that, you know, the marshal of the household and, the, you know, the steward and all that lot actually had to work this kind of thing out as a three-dimensional game of chess. Very, very complicated, but actually rather exciting. And when you go to somewhere like Walkworth, walk through the Great Tower there. It's a very fine bit of architecture. And it's quite labyrinthine. There's all sorts of, you know, interesting little narrow passages that go from one place to another. And, you know, your mind instantly finds yourself racing about the people that had walked down these corridors, either for the mundane business of actually making sure that everyone was properly fed and watered, or actually, you know, the high status people doing politics of, you know, who gets to go in here and who's going to talk to, who's going to be part of this discussion and so on and so forth. It feels very dramatic, like a stage set, and that's exactly, I think, what its builders wanted it to do, because that was key to the way that it operated. Let's look at the sort of hierarchy then, the social range of people based at a typical medieval castle. We've already described the sort of the constable. Could you give us a sort of list of, from the, maybe the bottom to the top, of who would be there? Well, it's going to vary and it's quite complicated, but let's start right at the bottom. There are beggars at the gate. It's a very important part of the duty of, of a noble person or indeed of a king to actually be the patron of people low down. So, in the accounts for Countess Joan de Valence at Goodrich Castle, on every day, there's a list of the number of beggars that were there, or poor people, palperes is how they're described in the Latin, who are being fed at her expense on, you know, on the day. And doubtless, you know, they knew as they watched the train of Countess Joan's carts arriving, you know, across the country, people would go, OK, perhaps we shall eat today. They'd actually go there and, and see that. There are fairly low-grade servants, not all of whom we know their names, not all of whom we know their precise jobs. But as you say, there's a quite large and elaborate staff of people that have got to be doing the catering. So below the cook, who's a probably quite an important figure, you know, there are lots of sub-cooks in there. 
and people responsible for different departments within the downstairs part of the operation, if you like. So other officers will be the person in charge, you know, of the buttery. And eventually, you know, this is where we get the post, the butler, you know, who's the person who's, who's dishing out the drink, as it were. The man in charge of the pantry, who's responsible for bread and also, you know, he's looking after spices and other kind of commodities, you know, for in there. Someone doing some work in the brew house, which is always associated with the bakehouse within the castle because it's much of the same ingredients that are necessary for the brewing of ale. There will be people looking after the cellars where all the stocks of both food in the larder and also the stocks of drink are supposed to be kept. Not all of this is, is going, to be, going to be brought in uh, for the castle. Some of it is going, going to be kept in stores. And then, you know, as you go higher up and they get nearer to the household itself... Then, as we say, important figures like the Chamberlain and the chaplains will be doing administrative jobs. So they will be compiling the accounts because there's probably some of the few people for much of the period who will be literate. And sometimes they will actually have to be going out to do other things. They'll be going out to buy certain commodities. Just one funny detail, by the way, about chaplains that I've discovered during my researches at English Heritage is that we always think of chapels within castles and they all had them as being you know the places of worship and that's absolutely right but interestingly in the middle ages the chapels do seem to have been a little bit more multi-purpose which is something that's quite ill with modern conceptions and there's a very telling bit from the accounts of countess joan at goodrich castle where just before the countess arrives on one of her visits there's a payment for mending the door of the chapel where the horses' oats are kept. Now, obviously, you know, keeping horses' oats is not really compatible with the Countess and her household attending religious services in there. But when she wasn't there, the chaplain didn't have a large congregation to look after, and they just used the space for storing whatever they could. And we even have some accounts in other places of weapons being stored in chapels. So, you know, it wasn't that they were actually sacred spaces set apart for everything. And the people that are doing the jobs are also likewise a little bit more generalist, I think. The people who are doing all these jobs, are they actually living at the castle as well, on site? Some of them are, but probably a relatively small number. And I've talked previously about the household of noble gentlemen and ladies and also the household of the royals as being a travelling circus and that's exactly what it was that you know there's a large amount of property that's got to move but also a large number of people when the royal or the baronial household was in place then the whole pecking order changes and probably the people that are the most important within the castle are not the locals from the castle they are the people that are the core of the travelling household of the head, the owner, as it were, and they get to take precedence. And, you know, on the day when the household moves on, you know, it must be an enormous sense of anticlimax, but suddenly almost like everyone's gone and you're back now to a skeleton staff of a relatively small number of, you know, of officials and a relatively small number of servants, and suddenly everyone can breathe again. And doubtless they've all got to start, you know, clearing up from all the mess that's left from when these people have been there and clear out the guard robes and all those other things, you know, some of the more menial jobs that need to happen. But the whole character of the site must have changed massively in that moment. The guard robes being the toilets uh, in modern language, I suppose. Uh, sorry, yes, I was speaking medieval there briefly for a moment. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, uh, that's a universal thing in castles. There are going to be a lot of people there sometimes, and they've all got to have somewhere to go. So, you know, in many of our castles, good, rich, and, and for all of them, 
you know, you've got to keep your eye open, look down at the base of towers, look at the base of walls, and often you will see these rather mysterious looking rectangular openings, and they are the bases of the chutes that are underneath the latrines where what comes naturally drops down and can be easily be shoveled out and spread around on the fields or put out in, into the ditch where hopefully it won't offend too many people. Speaking of uh, medieval speak, English obviously wasn't a universal language during the early period of castles, and what with the Norman invasion. With people speaking different languages, how did they all communicate with one another? Yeah, I found a really interesting bit of information about this, which sadly it's not to do with an English site, it's actually to do with the castle in Wales, but I suspect that it's quite general, and it's it's from the time of King Edward I, where we actually know the languages that people were capable of speaking. And rather surprisingly, what it seems is that you'd think that the higher your social status is, the more languages you'd probably be able to speak, you'd be better educated. Not so. Probably the higher up the social structure you go, the more you are capable of dictating what language you need other people to understand. And what seems to be the case is that actually some of the more menial people actually had to have a certain amount of fluency in French, which, as the 14th century goes on, English really comes on a piece. And and it's often been said that at the end of the 14th century, Richard II was the first king of England for whom English was probably his natural language. And before that, they're going to be speaking French and probably lots of the noblemen are also going to be speaking French. Certainly when they, they leave us letters, the letters are often in French. But the cook at one of these castles is going to have to understand the instructions from the constable and his higher-up people who routinely are going to be speaking to him in French. So actually, what appears to be the case is that some of the servants that are going to have to have quite regular contact with the officials are probably going to need to speak at least the essentials of a language that's not their own. It's something that I think actually would be really fascinating to do more research about because I think we just tend to assume that everyone spoke the same language, but they really don't seem to have done so. Of course, the church services are all taking place in Latin, and where writing needs to happen, where things that things are being recorded, Latin is, is still the language of government and officialdom. So there's probably going to be a certain amount of Latin associated with writing up of the court hearings, for example, that will be taking place in some of the royal castles, which is a very important element of how the castle operated. And I can't help but notice that it still has a little bit of a hangover if you go to somewhere like Clifford's Tower in York, where the Assize Courts, you know, which is an 18th century building, are right next to, they, they are within the area of the bailey of the castle. And that function, actually, though the building has changed, that function hasn't moved at all. So it's just an interesting sort of point that would also have been characteristic of a number of other such castles and of course you know as part of government and officialdom then latin is another language that the people that need to know it need to know it and they need to be able to probably communicate with one another they probably need to speak to one another in that language but they certainly need to use it for for writing stuff down so there's a hierarchy of languages and english until quite late in the period is not the most important or probably the most widespread of any of them That's really interesting. That's an international sound in a way. There are also sights and smells to talk about. We touched on some of the smells in in the sense of the toilets in modern parlance. What other smells and sights would there be around a castle? Well, while we're on the subject of earthy matters, I think one important smell would be the smell of, of horses and what they do naturally, because castles are, to a greater or lesser extent, associated with the higher ranking people in society. 
they don't walk anywhere. They go about on horseback or they go about in, in carriages. And horses are a very, very important element of this. And, you know, horses have got to be fed, they've got to be cleaned, they've got to be groomed. And what the horses produce at the other end has got to go somewhere. So I suspect that horse manure is actually going to be a quite common smell in there. You know, at a higher level, the smell of catering, this is probably going to be cooking of a quite elaborate and high order that these people are also capable of affording spices that are going to have to come, you know, from the other ends of the the known world in there. So that's going to be part of the smell as well, the smells of baking bread but also the smells of dishes being prepared in you know in the castle kitchens and we do know once again from some of these accounts i mean sadly menus or recipes don't survive until the end of the 14th century but they could get through prodigious amounts of food on days when they were allowed to eat it and i say that because as good observers of roman catholic practice in religion There are a number of times of the year and a number of days in the week when they're not supposed to eat meat. So at that time, they've got to be eating fish for those that are allowed. And certainly some people have, you know, even more abstemious diets than that. But that's going to be a smell. There's also the question of drink. And um, this is one of those ones where there's a sort of slight false friend, you know, about this, the idea that actually they couldn't drink the water and it it would all be absolutely terrible. Some historians trying to walk this one back a little bit, the idea that actually you know, the water was also deadly. But it is certainly true that the households do seem to get through prodigious quantities of other kinds of drink, although that drink is probably not going to be of a very high alcoholic content in all its time. So there's a lot of ale that's brewed with malted barley and with wheat in the period where they've got wine. They're also going to be drinking it. They drink cider as well. And mead as well, we have records of of that being stored in the castle stores as well. So certainly it's a diet in food and drink that is of a higher level of elaboration than the bulk of people living in villages and towns were, were able to afford. We talked earlier about what it would be like to be the constable and what his responsibilities would be. But on the opposite end, a prisoner, how does a prisoner experience life at a castle Is that image of prisoners chained to walls in dungeons reality? Yes, it is a reality for some people. It's a reality for the very unlucky ones. And as with everything, there's a continuum here that some of the people who were imprisoned in castles are political prisoners, if you like, people of importance. And for them, it must have felt a little bit like being under house arrest, that you could go around and you within the castle as long as you didn't escape and you'd have you know attendants and servants you would eat quite well you'd have a fire apart from the just being deprived of your liberty it kind of felt terribly different to normal life and castles famously and you know the, the the highest ranking people are prisoner royals and you know you think about Eleanor of Aquitaine, the uh, estranged wife of King Henry II at the end of the 12th century, who's moved around from a whole variety of castles, and Old Serum Castle is certainly one of the ones that she stays in. And, you know, she has a pretty good life. She has a pretty good household about this. But at the other end of the spectrum, there are people who are chained up the whole of the time. They don't have proper, well-ventilated, well-heated chambers. And that must have been ghastly. And, you know, quite often those people don't last very long. But one of the things about imprisonment is that for much of my period in the Middle Ages, imprisonment isn't in itself 
a punishment or a sanction. Imprisonment is just what they do with you while they're working out what else they're going to do with you. Either they're going to release you or they will take some other punishment or, the, or, or they'll move you around. So it's not like you will go to prison for five years. It's, you, you know, you will go to prison until something else happens to you. And the kind of circumstances of who you were and what you'd done would be fairly critical to this. But I can think of, you know, a few English heritage properties. Certainly Goodrich Castle has a space that we've identified as a prison because we certainly can't really think of too many other uses for it beside the Great Tower. And it's a dark, unheated, very unappealing space. And I can't imagine anyone surviving too well in that for a long period of time, certainly not in winter anyway. What would these prisoners have done? Would they have done something to offend or uh, taken property? Quite a lot of people that are in prison there are the people that have carried out the kind of offences that you know about, you know, from Robin Hood type stories about, you know, offending against the forest law or theft or, or, or anything else. But pretty much anything in the Middle Ages is regarded as a felony. I mean, you know, capital crimes can go quite a long way down the scale. So it's quite hard to generalize about this and imprisonment isn't the only sanction that's available because one other thing that you can do is you do a procedure that's called abjuring the realm where often you would previously have taken refuge in a church where you'd have sanctuary that that you couldn't be arrested and you'll say okay i am now abjuring the realm so i now have a free pass to the nearest port that will take me out of the country and i will go off into exile and if i ever come back I'll take my chances. And we do have some instances in castles of people who had previously gone into exile and then and then got bored with it and had come back and they were arrested and brought into imprisonment in the castles and then, in one case that I can think of, actually hanged for a fairly petty bit of theft. But nevertheless, it was deemed that that was the appropriate punishment for it. Were there many castles in English Heritage's collection that, had prison-like rooms. You described a couple there. For an awful lot of them, they don't have specific prison accommodation, or if it does, we haven't really identified it. Goodrich is one, Framlingham's another one, where, you know, I'd like to think of the space as a prison, but actually the best evidence that we have for it, it's a room at the base of the spiral stair that goes up onto the curtain wall. The best evidence we have for it actually comes from after the Middle Ages, the time when the space was used as a lock-up during the operation of the workhouse there for anyone who misbehaved within the workhouse could be sort of put into cool for a, for a period of time. But I mean, actually, I think it'd be quite good use for it. But for much of the time, I think prisoners were probably kept in spaces that otherwise were used as storerooms or they were used as, as accommodation for the garrison. And one of the things that often gives these away is graffiti on the walls. Now, that graffiti tends not to be specific that says, you know, I was prisoner and I'm carving my name on the wall there. But someone who's staying there for a long period of time, imprisonment is actually quite a likely context in some instances for that, although it could, I suppose, just as easily be carved by, by bored soldiers. And famously, at um, some other places in England. The Tower of London is one where, you know, in all of these defensive towers around the perimeter, you'll see graffiti that was definitely carved by prisoners during the 16th century on the inside of the walls there. So imprisonment tended to be where there was space for you. And we do have some accounts that talk of prisoners being kept in stables or kept in sheds because that was a place where they could be locked up. Let's look at um, castles in action, in military action. 
How often were they involved in fighting and, and how did the feel of the castle change during those times? I mean, was a castle really built to be a war machine? I don't know the answer to that. And it's a question that actually I've been thinking about much of the best part of 20 years. So the fact that I, that I, that I don't know the answer is, is hard to say. And this, the question is, is basically this. Were castle designed for the good days or for the bad days? I think years ago I, I, I had the common sense view about it that castles were primarily built for fighting and defensive purposes. But the more I look at them, the more I think actually their architecture just in many cases, it just doesn't really work terribly neatly for that because you can see all these points of weakness where there are big windows in the wall and you think, oh, that would be a point where some people would be able to shoot through them and all that lot. So I think I start to come to the conclusion in answer to that question that it will probably vary from castle to castle. But in terms of how they change, this is again another instance where documentary history tells us some really interesting points that while there would be at all times, I think in most castles, there would be a certain amount of weaponry that would be stored up for the bad days. That weaponry wouldn't always be properly maintained. We have a number of inventories of castles during the 14th century, particularly, where people had to look at the fabric of the castles and look at the various stores in there. And time after time, you get references to crossbows that don't really work anymore where bits of armor where the leather elements of them have rotten and haven't been replaced where metal things have been allowed to get rusty now that is a testament to the fact that actually in the middle ages it wasn't in england a time of constant warfare or violence that yeah okay you know there's a lot of wars that going on but some of them are going to be overseas or they're not going to affect absolutely every castle whether there are going to be wars against the scots or wars against the welsh not every castle is going to get get heavily involved in them and when they weren't then things were probably allowed to slip a little bit when castles did get involved in fighting then suddenly you get large numbers of people that arrive some of them are going to be professional fighters they will hopefully bring in other weaponry of their own kind that will be properly maintained and the whole place goes on to a slightly different footing it's all, all a bit more intensive and everything you know must change and one bit of research that i've done quite recently involves the royal castle at rochester where Rochester was involved in three sieges during the Middle Ages. And one of the sieges takes place in the year 1264 during the conflict known as the Barons' War. And that conflict is actually really, at Rochester, is really well described in this very unusual account that actually describes day-to-day -day expenditure that actually runs through some of the days when fighting was happening. So much of what they're talking about is just expenditure in what they ate and what they consumed, you know, from the various departments. So it runs through the pantry and the wine cellar and who's looking after the horses and payment for the chamber. But in the margin, it has these rather remarkable little notes that say, on this day, they have attacked the castle. And you think, oh, Lord, what's, what's going on there? And rather interestingly, it tells us, perhaps unsurprisingly, that when a siege was on, no one's going out into the, into the market, out to the town to buy any new stuff. You've got to consume only what you've got in storage. And this particular siege, interestingly, happened during the last days of the season of Lent, when it was forbidden to eat meat. So they're eating their way every day under siege through mackerel and mullet and salmon from the stores. Quite a lot of stuff. Conger eels, porpoises, herrings, you know, out of store. 
the people in the stables have got to have forage and hay to feed 163 horses. So that's quite a lot of uh, material. They're getting through wax for candlelight at night time. But they're still not entirely without their creature comforts. Someone is eating almonds, raisins and rice. So that's quite nice as well. And they're drinking. They're drinking wine from the store. They're drinking quite a lot of cider, ale. And on Easter Saturday, when the siege is still going on, they have to use up a bit more wheat and barley to brew a bit more ale because their ale has obviously run out. On Easter Sunday, Lent has finished, and because it's Easter Sunday, the siege stops for a bit. So they have a day's truce, and for the first time in ages, they're allowed to eat pork. They eat eight salted pigs, salted bacons, as it's described in the document, four and a half carcasses of beef, eight carcasses of mutton from the stores, and 400 eggs. So that's all quite nice, and Lent is over. Then on Easter Monday... They're fighting again, so they don't have time to eat quite so much and the expenditure goes down. And once again, this is only the kind of stuff they have from the stores. So it's it's quite a lot of detail that actually you can get to, to see the way that life is, is going on, even at a time when fighting is happening. And it can be quite remarkable just to be reminded of this on a day when Chronicle Histories are telling us that on this day, the outer bailey of the castle was captured, or on this day the defenders of the castle actually set fire to the hall within the castle in order to deny it to the attackers as a place where they might be able to shelter so so the defenders torch it before, before they can get to it. But they're eating their way through the stores and they're drinking the wine in the same way that they would have to do. That's really interesting, the, the siege of Rochester Castle and, and how much is consumed and, and drunk in preparation for battle there. There's a lot of detail there about what is eaten, especially around the meats and the amount of meat that was consumed. But how many soldiers would have been on site defending? Well, as I say, there's, there's 163 horses. So that's going to be well more than 163 people. But again, the garrison of Rochester Castle and the stores are not really set up for that kind of numbers of people. You know, from all other evidence, Rochester Castle's garrison is probably going to be, you know, in the, the order of 20 or 30. So the fact that it, it's gone up by this kind of amount, you know, probably multiplied six, seven or eight times from what what it would normally have. These are certainly not normal days. And it doesn't seem to me that this is the way that anyone probably expected the castle to operate when it was first designed and built. It strikes me that castles had these defensive features as a kind of insurance policy against attack. How often were these castles attacked? Was it more rare? Well, it it varies enormously, and it depends where you were. So what we always say is that sometimes we get asked, you know, which is the castle in England, English heritage, with the most violent history? And I think Norham Castle, where, I mean, I counted, I've done this several times, and I always get a slightly different figure, but certainly something like 14 military exchanges take place. And there's a reason for that. Norham Castle is on the border between England and Scotland, a heavily contested border that they're fighting you know, at all the time. Somewhere like Dover Castle, when there are sieges, we know about them because it's a really big deal. And some of those sieges are to do with, you know, foreign invasions of, you know, of England or civil wars. But actually, you'll go decades at the time without actually anything much going on. And I think there are a fair number of castles, particularly baronial castles or castles of bishops, for example, where there almost isn't really any military history to talk about until you get to the English civil wars of the 17th century. But 
What you might also be able to argue is that actually this is a sign of the success of the castle because actually if the castle was built big enough and intimidating enough, people are not going to be attacking it. And you still get some sense of that, I think, when you look at something like Framlingham Castle where the curtain walls of the castle are built in the 12th century but they're still hugely powerful in the landscape. They're very, very big, forbidding you know, shapes of the castle and actually you know, you'd want to probably avoid attacking that unless you really had to because you'd probably be committing yourself to a long and difficult siege without any particular guarantee of success. So I think that's why you get quite a lot of variation in how violent and how contested the histories of these different castles were. And the sieges themselves, he described Rochester's siege as would they have lasted several days? Well, the Rochester siege is actually probably a fairly typical one. It wasn't a particularly long one. It went on for just over a week. And then what happened is what I think often did happen. Another army turned up from elsewhere and the attackers felt that they were likely to get squeezed between another royal army and the royal garrison inside, and so they took themselves off. And one of the chroniclers, who's quite sympathetic to the attackers, said if they'd actually just had one more go, they would have been able to crack Rochester Castle, but it wasn't to be, and off they went. And that, I think, is quite often the case, that you know, a lot of sieges are probably going to be over in, you know, in a matter of days or so, because it's in no one's interest, really, to settle down for a long time. But you do get some long ones. Kenilworth Castle, which goes on for weeks and months, is often said to be one of the longest. One of my colleagues is, is, is very excited that has just done the maths and actually discovered that another one of our castles, Peveril Castle, you actually get an even longer siege during the 13th century. So we think we might hold the record for that one. And again, that's going to be a matter of that goes into months. But many military engagements are going to be much, much smaller and much, much shorter. Speaking of records and evidence of castle life that survives that we know about today, what's the best evidence? You've obviously done a lot of research yourself, but what sort of documents survive from those periods in history? Well, they're really fascinating and there's a lot of them and it's a it's miraculous that they've survived, both in local record offices and many of them have been brought together in one big national collection, the National Archives, formerly called the Public Record Office, which is in Kew, just to the south of London. And I could spend years going through the documentation of medieval castles and only scratch the surface. There are many, many thousands of documents in their surviving. They're not always that easy to read. They're written in Latin. They're written in medieval handwriting. They're written with abbreviated words. Some of them are written in a particular dialect of medieval French that we call Anglo-Norman, which is, is for someone who knows modern French, is actually quite tricky to read. The language I'm most afraid of in my documents is finding one in English because the spelling is all over the place. Actually, I feel much, much happier with medieval Latin than I do with medieval English. But you get a few documents that are later in the Middle Ages that survive in, in English as well in there. They can take all sorts of forms. There's a lot of documentation, particularly for royal castles, for the construction of new buildings and the maintenance and repair of others but as you plow through them you will also find information about the human history that we've been talking about in this podcast payments to the constable payments to the garrison 
payments for purchases of food and other things. And when you're really, really lucky, and this is quite unusual, you get the kind of detailed payments where you can actually work out the names of all of the people who were involved and what they were doing on specific days and what they ate and drank and the clothes that they wore and the weapons that they used and maintained and so and so forth. And it, it, with that kind of detail, you really can start to, to put a bit of life into the stone shell of the castle when you go and visit it today. What sort of feeling do you get when you're handling some of these really old parchments? Is it almost well, like you've suddenly gone back in time? Or? At its best... Yeah, it really does feel like that. And, you know, it always takes me quite a long time to get my eye in, as I say, because the handwriting and you know is quite difficult. But it is remarkable how well preserved these things have been over the centuries, the number of places that they must have been kept. I mean, we know, for example, that for centuries, an awful lot of these documents were kept in a castle. They were actually kept in the Tower of London. That became, during the early modern period, that was the repository for them. So, it's pretty remarkable that actually, you know, they haven't all been completely rotten or eaten by rodents or anything else. But, you know, many of them are almost as fresh as if they were made today. And it is a great thrill. I particularly, if I'm reading a document of an account of a place that we at English Heritage look after and that we know well, there is an incredible thrill where suddenly it will describe something in detail. And you think, actually, that's still there. I know that. It can be one of those quite amazing moments where history suddenly isn't about King Edward I playing national and international power politics, but we have the name of a mason from a place name in Cheshire, and he's paid a certain amount of money for carving three stones on one side of a doorway, and those three stones are still there. I can go and put my hand on them, and I know that he was paid that money on a day that was actually a Tuesday in the year 1286. I mean, that is an enormous thrill. And at that kind of moment, it really feels as if the centuries have have fallen away. And that actually, you know, you are standing in the footprints of named people who came before you several hundred years ago. And that's a truly exciting and humble, humbling moment for a historian. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. To find out more about the castles cared for by English Heritage, just visit the English Heritage website. Join us again next week when we're back to relive the events of Operation Dynamo and the Dunkirk Rescue, 80 years after it was coordinated from Dover Castle's secret war tunnels. Vice Admiral Bertram Ramsey basically said it was not a planned operation, an extemporisation, if you like, under very difficult circumstances. Thanks for listening. See you next time.